0: All right, guys, we need to go ahead and get started. It is 1230. We always try to start right on time and end right on time. Some days we do better than others. But we want to welcome you. If this is your first time, we're glad you're here. Um, There's some to-go containers. If you didn't grab something in time or you want a little bit more, you are welcome to it. All of this is provided by Ruth's Chris, and we're very thankful for them. We ask that you, whatever you think the meal is worth, leave it here in the tips jar and that goes straight to the people in the kitchen who feed us every time. If you like this ministry and the teaching and want to see it continue, you can always go to discipledojo.org, that's my ministry, and become a monthly donor. We really, really need monthly donors. $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can give, but that helps us do things like this on a regular basis, as well as all of the other teaching DVD, video curriculum, uh, podcast, all kinds of cool stuff. So check out the website, discipledojo.org. Let's jump into Deuteronomy now, because we are at the end of the major section of the book. Deuteronomy 26 is where we are today, and the entire section that we've been in for months now, uh, going all the way back to the spring, was, um, let me see if I can find the execs, but the section of Deuteronomy where it starts in the stipulations. And we've talked about, yeah, all the way back to know, like chapter 5. Yeah, <clears throat> actually, chapter 4, verse 44 is where this section began. So, chapters 4 through 26, huge chunk of the book of Deuteronomy has been what in the ancient Near East covenant treaties was known as the stipulations. So to recap, because some of you haven't been here for this study, in the ancient Near East, the world of the second millennium BC, so that's like 1500s, 1400s BC, sometime around then, which is around the time this is going on, whenever uh, two entities, let's say city, states, countries, whatever, would make an agreement, there would be a treaty, a covenant document that would be written up and then afterwards there would be a covenant ratification ceremony where the covenant would be accepted by both parties, and it was basically like signing your name to the contract. Now, these ancient Near East treaties, we have many of them, and you can read them if you want to go to a library and go to the ancient Near East section. Um, I have it sitting on my shelf, a number of these treaties, and you can see that they parallel Deuteronomy in structure. So when we read Deuteronomy, what we're reading is God using the ancient Near East suzerainty treaty covenant format to show his people, hey, this is the kind of king you're serving. Me, not a human king, not an earthly king, not a Hittite king, not an Assyrian king, not an Egyptian king, you are serving the king of the universe. So our treaty, our covenant stipulation treaty is going to be like the treaties you're familiar with in some ways but it's going to be very different in other ways. So for instance Ancient Near East Covenant treaties, you would, two, doc, two, two copies would be prepared. One copy would go back to the king and his temple and his palace and his city. The other copy would stay with the vassal in their palace, in their, rather in their uh, temple of their god. So that both countries, both cities, both people's gods were witness to the covenant that they had made together okay that's how it worked make copy here alright we both sign it we do the covenant ceremony we have a meal together and then the copies come back with us and go in our respective temples to our respective gods deuteronomy lets us know and, and we've seen in exodus when god made a covenant with israel two copies but they both stayed together in the ark of the covenant forget the charlton heston Forget the depictions in ancient uh, in artwork. It wasn't five on one tablet, five on another. That's a medieval concept that has nothing to do with scripture. It was the covenant document on one tablet, and that same covenant document on another tablet, and both of those tablets together were stored in the ark of the covenant, which was the temple of the God, who also happened to be, or also happened to be, the house of the God. Because the God of Israel was going to not like other ancient Near Eastern kings where I'm going to live here and you're going to be my vassal way out there away from me. No, Israel's God, Israel's suzerain was going to live in the midst of the vassals. In the midst of Israel. That's what the entire structure of um, Israel's society was set up to allow. That's why we spent a year or two years ago in Leviticus looking at how that carefully laid out concept of the king, the, the king of kings dwelling not on the top of Mount Sinai, but in the center of the portable, collapsed Mount Sinai, known as the tabernacle, this is how this is going to exist for Israel as a people. And so all of the concepts of holiness and separation and cleanness and purity and sacrifices and all of those things were basically to house the holy among the common. And that's been a running theme ever since the book of Exodus, even before that in the of Genesis. So if you've been here with us for these past five, six years, these are the things that should by now be familiar to you in terms of how Israel was established as a nation and how their outlook on who they were was set up to begin with. They were the covenant people of the great suzerain, the king of kings, the lord of lords. They were his vassal. And so he gives them in Deuteronomy, he gives them all of the stipulations of his covenant. So other kings might say, hey, you're going to be my vassal. Here's what you're going to do. I want um, you know, a third of all of your wheat and of all of your barley and of all of your flocks. Uh, I want you to send your young men ages 15 to 22 to be conscripted into my army. I want you to pay me this much from your treasury every year. Uh, you know, These are the kind of stipulations that these ancient kings would lay out for their vassals. Well, what we've seen for the past few months are the stipulations that God, Yahweh, the King of Kings, has laid out for His vassal. And it's things like, hey, this is how you're going to live as My people. This is the type of people you're going to be in the midst of all these other people. And we've seen how His stipulations differ in many ways from those of the ancient Near East. And how He's calling them to be within their context, pointing above or beyond their context. So he enters into the ancient Near East, a people group, and he uses them to start to point the way towards what will eventually in the New Covenant be a worldwide suzerainty, a worldwide kingdom without political borders, without ethnic borders, without national borders. So Israel is the preview of coming attractions in many ways. Israel was not intended to be the final stage of global redemption. All the way back to Genesis 15, God always had bigger plans for Israel than Israel. And that is something that we have to keep in mind, especially Christians who who develop an Israel fetish. You've met Christians like this, usually, you know, very, very like, oh, we've got everything about Israel, you know, I'm going to start, if I have one-eighth, one-twentieth Jewish blood, I'm going to automatically start wearing the kippah and using Hebrew roots and reading this. It's not like there's anything wrong with rediscovering your Jewish heritage if that's where you come from, because it's a wonderful heritage it's the heritage of jesus it's the messiah you know the 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 jewish people are the ones whom god chose to bring forth the one who would redeem the entire world but when we start to fixate or focus or or or, or just get i mean i i, I, I there's no other better term than fetishizing when you just fetishize when it when it just becomes so preoccupied with the with the jewishness the hebrewness the the nationalistic Israel, even today, stand with Israel no matter what and this and that. What's happened is you've missed the whole thrust of the Old Testament as it pertains to Israel themselves. Israel itself was always intended to point beyond Israel, Israel was always established to be a light to the nations. Not a light saying, hey, look at us, we're Israel. Look at us, we're the Jews. But saying, no, we, the least of all the peoples that God pulled out of you know, wandering servitude and built into a nation, this is the, who the Messiah came through in order to reach the world that had turned away from God. And this is the story of Israel being the redemption of the world. But we'll see later, Israel, in the next few chapters, Israel themselves will be in need of redemption. Because Israel, even though Israel was meant to be the lifeline to all of humanity, to draw the nations back to God, Israel will cut the very lifeline that they are supposed to be. Israel will deny the covenant. Israel will break every single one of these stipulations and they will pay for it. And this is all going to be announced in the coming passages in sections of Deuteronomy that we're going to cover. This is not New Testament stuff. This is not Gentiles looking back and pointing fingers. Ha! You Jews, you couldn't get it right. No, no, no. This is from the book of the Jews. This is from Israel's own Scriptures. Moses will reveal this to his people looking ahead and seeing what's going to happen. And then by the end of the Old Testament, we're left with a problem. How can, can the, the means by which the world was going to be redeemed, God's covenant people Israel, How can that happen if God's covenant people themselves turn away? Then what's left? How can God keep his promise that he'll redeem the world through Israel when Israel themselves have turned away? And that's the mystery that will remain until a guy named John the Baptist steps on the scene and introduces his cousin Jesus, who then comes and says, Hey, here's how it's going to happen I'm Israel. Me. I'm Israel. I'm the only true Israel. All of the rest of Israel has fallen away, but I'm going to take the destiny of my people on my shoulders, live it out perfectly, die for the sins of my people and the sins of the world so that Israel will be saved and all the world will be saved through Israel. So it's just this incredible plan of God that we see when we step back and look at the whole scope of biblical theology. But we can't appreciate it if we aren't familiar with the path that it took to get there. And we can't do that unless we immerse ourselves in the Torah, in the prophets, in the writings known as the Old Testament. And that's why we do this Bible study that we do today. So, we're here. We're at the end of the stipulation section that God has given His covenant people Israel. And He goes on... Uh, we, we stopped last week in chapter 25 at verse 16, and we're going to pick it up at chapter 25, verse 17, because Israel's going into the land, and God tells them, now... Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you and the land He's giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. God is adding... So we've already seen the goal when Israel goes into Canaan there to drive out these specific peoples of Canaan that God's already named. They, aren't, they don't get carte blanche to wipe out everybody. God's not just, a, a, you know, He's not on Israel's side just because they're ethnic Jews and, and that's who His people and everybody else forget them. No. God says there's specific peoples that I'm using you, My people, to judge these peoples of Canaan. And now in this section He's adding, and added to that list is going to be this other, sect, this other group of people called the Amalekites. Why? The Amalekites, harassed hounded chased followed israel and picked off the stragglers the people who were either too young or too old to travel with the rest of the group had to rest they became sick whatever the amalekites would pick them off would destroy them and god's saying the amalekites now have brought upon themselves the status of canaanites and so they will be treated among you like canaanites that means that in addition to the the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, gergesites you know, all of the ones that we've read so far, the Amalekites are added to the list. Why? Because of what they did to you when you were at your weakest, most vulnerable stage. And God said, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse, to Abraham's descendants. And at this point in the narrative, Abraham's descendants are the covenant people Israel. And so the Amalekites are going to actually reap what they sowed when they thought they could destroy Israel or pick off or... Had no fear of god so god's telling israel when you get into the land remember this and 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 they will be wiped their their name the name of amalek will be wiped out along with the name of the rest of the canaanites that we've looked at because god is god is remember israel is god's covenant army that is being sent into enemy territory to drive out the enemy that's in that territory that's the mindset that Deuteronomy, that Moses is wanting to leave this group of uh, second-generation Hebrews with. So, verse tw- uh, chapter twenty-six. This is the final stipulation of all the stipulations. This is the end of it. It's very interesting what it ends with. When you've entered the land, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then, go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for His name, that's the tabernacle, and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hand, set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. So you're the first thing you're to do when you go, when you bring in the crops. This will be every third year, the year of the tithe. We saw this back in chapter 14. You bring forth the first fruits, the best part, not the leftovers. The first fruits, you bring it, you present it, and you say, you don't just say, okay, here's my gift, I'm going to go home now. No, you give your gift and then you recount, verbally recount, the history of the people of God that, of which you're a part. It's it's a verbal reminder every time you bring the first fruits. I'm bringing this not as my gift to you, God. I'm bringing this as the portion of your gift to me that you've required. See, this keeps the mindset in, in Israel that you are not giving God anything. We give God nothing. We give God nothing. What we do when we bring our gifts and our offerings is we give back to God. Part of what he has entrusted to us as stewards and said, if everybody's doing this, then all of the people's needs are going to be met. Trust me. I know it seems like you don't have enough to get through the month. I know it seems like bills are tight. I know it seems whatever. Give me the first and the best and I'll take care of the rest. And this is an act of faith that Israel would have to do because they they lived in a time where your day-to-day life was uncertain. You lived on a daily basis. You did you didn't store up in refrigeration units meat for the coming year. You know, what you hunt and killed, you had to eat very soon, or that would go bad. You know, your crops, you had no there was no, you know, big storehouse feed and seed places that you could go to if you had a bad crop and get a do-over. Your crops, you lived and died with your crops, with how God blessed the land. And so God's having Israel do this, reminding them Hey, I'm the one. Remember, I'm your suzerain. I'm the one who's bringing you to this land. All that you have is because of my free gift of grace. That's why they recount that my father was a wandering Aramean. Some translations, you could say my father was an ailing or a perishing Aramean. The word wandering, perishing, ailing could be translated in similar ways. But the point is the same. I, I, as a person, am here today with my first fruits of my crops, in spite of the fact that my ancestor, whose name I bear, it's talking about Jacob, by the way, if you didn't guess that, you weren't here for Genesis, it's talking about Jacob, wandering Aramean, Jacob went up to Padum Aram, that's where Aramean comes from, he married Rachel Leah, the concubines, they had that whole breeding war, dysfunctional family, just all kinds of craziness. Then on his way back from that wandering, back down to the promised land, he got a name change, Israel. They are to come before God every time they bring the tithes, the first fruits, and say, this is where I came from and this is where I am now. And it recounts the history of God's grace. And that's how they're going to live. And so he goes on to say, verse 12, when you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portions and given it to the Levite, the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything You commanded me. Look down from heaven, Your holy dwelling place, and bless Your people Israel and the land You have given us as You promised on oath to our forefathers. A land flowing with milk and honey. Only once the poor have been fed can Israel then say, I have kept your commandments. Only once there has been social justice, which to some Christians is a bad word, although it shouldn't be, only then can Israel stand up and say, I have kept your commands, now bless me. This is the last stipulation. This is the end of it. So all of the things, the sacrifices, the purity, the laws, the sexual laws, the holiness laws, the battle—you know—how you're supposed to act in war and in battle, and you know how you're supposed to do your laws, how you're supposed to try criminals, and how you're supposed to acquit the innocent, and all of all of this. At the end of the day, the last commandment that you have to remember is: give your portion so that the poor, the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow can eat in your towns. The last thing that God says, then you can say, I have obeyed everything you commanded. The first greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, Jesus says, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The prophets will come down hard on Israel in the future because Israel will do the exact opposite. Israel will keep doing the feast, They'll keep doing the holy days. They'll keep talking about how they're the people of God. They'll keep decorating the temple, on and on and on but they will neglect the needy, they will take advantage of the poor, and God will send them prophet after prophet saying, hey, all your hymns and all your worship songs, I hate them. Your symbols and your songs and your choruses and your prayers, they're noise in my ears. Why? Because the widow, the orphan, the fatherless are going hungry. If you don't keep that, don't you dare claim to be my people. I mean, God, you look, read the prophets, read their critiques against Israel time after time after time. That's what they're critiquing Israel for. Neglecting the poor and syncretism, allowing other gods to come in and kind of worshiping God, but also worshiping Baal and Asher and this and that. And those are the two things that cause Israel's downfall. God does not play when it comes to His view of the poor and the needy. And that's something that we as Christians have to keep in mind, and it should make us a little uncomfortable, but not in a condemnation way, but in an uh, an exhortation way. Hey, how how am I, what am I doing to bring in my first fruits? Does that mean I just write a check to the church every week? Maybe. I mean, Lord knows there are churches that need it, but there are a lot of churches that don't. And so we have to discern, hey, how am I caring for the poor? How am I caring for the needy? Am I giving so that people can be fed and clothed? Or am I giving so my pastor can have a nice suit and a private jet? Two very, very, very different things. So even in our giving of our first fruits, bringing it before the priest. And also remembering, am I giving because uh, let me throw God a bone here? Or am I giving because God has given me so much? How dare I withhold from what God has given me because I think I may need it in the future? When God, who knows the future, has already said, no, give and it will be given to you. A full measure, pressed down, shaken, running over. That's a test of faith. It's one that we don't always pass. I love what Christopher writes. So I've always I've mentioned Chris Wright in here a lot. He's, I've met him a couple of times. He's an Old Testament scholar. Uh, my favorite living theologian, biblical interpreter by far. His commentary on Deuteronomy, on this section, he talks about, and I posted it on my Instagram today, uh, a line from this. He says, Uh, in noting all of this and how Israel would then later claim, well, but we still do our prayers, we still keep the holidays, we still do this and that. And uh, he said, sacred rites are no atonement for social wrongs. And I love that. Sacred rites, R-I-T-E-S, like sacred duties, sacred, you know, being being religious, is no atonement for social wrongs. And it's something that has challenged God's people ever since the second millennium B.C., So, we finish this section out before we leave. Verse 16, the Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. And he's talking about everything we've read all the way back to chapter 5. Follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart, with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in His ways, that you will keep His decrees, commands, and laws, and that you will obey Him and the lord so you said your part you've declared i will do this and the lord has declared this day that you are his people his treasured possession as he promised that you are to keep all his commands he has declared that he will set you in praise fame and honor high above all the nations he has made and that you will be a people holy to the lord your god as he promised Literally, it says He has uh, declared that He will set you literally for praise, for a name, for honor, to be a holy people. And if you read commentaries on Deuteronomy, many of the interpreters, and if you read some of the translations, they'll even say this, this praise, this fame, this name is not Israel's. It's God's. Israel will be the one He sets as a beacon to all the nations of the world to look at for the sake of the name. What name? The name Israel? Israel. No. The name. Hashem. Yahweh. The name. God. Israel is to be the model. They are a city on a hill. They are a light of the world. They are salt to the earth. All these images that Jesus used that we think He made up, He was calling His hearers in His day back to what Deuteronomy and all of Torah had called them to be all along. Jesus didn't invent anything new when He taught His Sermon on the Mount. He corrected misinterpretations and bastardizations of what had come before. But Jesus called people back to Torah because the time for its completion was coming to an end in His own body, literally. And so that's the ethic that, we, that, that Deuteronomy leaves us with. This section, it ends. The next chapter is going to be now. Here's the ceremony that you're going to do when you cross into the land. And it's going to be the covenant ratification ceremony, which would happen when you made a covenant. We've seen this back in Exodus. God made the covenant with their parents. What did He do? He called some of the elders up. They had a meal together. They had a a, they covenant. Moses took some of the blood of the covenant. He sprinkled it on the people, and he said, "This is the blood of the covenant." And he actually sprinkled it on them. And the people said, "Yes, we'll obey everything." They did a covenant ratification ceremony. Then, as we saw in Numbers, they broke the covenant. Left, right, and center. They broke it as much as you could possibly break it. And so God says, okay, you broke the covenant. You took the blood on yourself and then you broke the covenant, so you're going to die and you will be excluded from what should have been your inheritance. So now, Covenant Stratification 2.0. When the people enter into the land, they are going to reaffirm the covenant that their parents broke and they're going to get a chance to walk in God's ways. But but the pattern... (coughs) The pattern in all of this is incredibly important because it sets the paradigm for what salvation means in the New Testament. Grace came first. Israel did not earn their way out of Egypt. Israel did not rescue themselves out of Egypt. Israel did nothing to free themselves from Egypt. All they did was when God said, I'm doing it, are you in? They said yes. Put the blood on the doorpost and wait. God redeemed them. So, there was a choice they had to make. If they didn't put the blood on the doorpost, they would have died in Egypt, their firstborn, along with all the Egyptians. Yes, they had a choice. That's not works righteousness. I don't care how super Calvinist you are and you think that that's just anathema. It's not, it's biblical theology. They did have to obey, but they didn't earn anything, they contributed nothing to their salvation. Moses, God through Moses, brought them out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. To the mountain where he met them, gave them the covenant, and said, Now that I've saved you, that's the term comes from of Exodus, the term of being saved. It's not a New Testament term, it's an Old Testament term. And it meant quite literally, Now that I've saved you, here's how you're going to live as a result or as a response to my grace. So you got grace, then you get law. Law always comes after grace, never before. That's the mistake that people make when they start to see the law as the means to achieve God's grace. They've already missed it. Law always came after grace as a response, not as a way of meriting. Because you can't merit grace. Or else it wouldn't be grace. It would be a salary. And so God said, I've given you grace. Now because of that, you're going to live My law. And as you live the law, and the nations see you living as My people and are drawn to you... Because they're being drawn to me, then you are glorified and my name is made great through all the earth and that's what I intended all the way back in Genesis that went wrong and the nations scattered and dispersed and people went after other gods and this and that. When, you, when my people who are saved by grace keep my law in the total sense, like live it out, then I'm glorified and the world is redeemed. That's the pattern. Well, that's how it went in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. The only thing that's changed is the scope and the nature of the law, what it looks like to keep it. But it's still the same paradigm. We're saved by grace. We don't do anything except believe and accept. And it's done. We, because of that then, we live our faith. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works within you. That's a New Testament, not an Old Testament verse. We live out the law of Christ Not the law of Moses, the law of Christ. Romans talks all about it. Galatians talks all about it. And as we live out the law of Christ, people, the nations, are drawn to this relationship that we have with God. And then that is what gives us a foothold into or or, or a light into the darkness to show people, hey, well, this is why I do what I do. This is why I live like I live. This is the God I serve. And people are drawn to God. It's the exact same paradigm salvation is a thoroughly old testament concept not a new testament concept we're out of time so next week we're going to come back we're going to look at the ceremony that they have to do which is both strange but also oddly fitting then we're going to read the blessings and the curses it's going to get rough um you're going to eat and then you're going to read things that make you want to throw up what you ate it's okay. That's how we roll here at Ruth Chris Bible Study. Just be prepared for it when you get to the curses because they get pretty heinous. Um, and that'll carry us through the holidays and then we'll, we'll be done with Deuteronomy for the year. So we've got to go. There's leftovers. There's seconds. Come get it. Uh, have a great week and we'll see you next time.